Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop, stop dying. dying, Chuck. Wow, well, there you dying, are. There you Chuck. are. Stop dying, Chuck. So, it's so good to be back, and you sat in my group just now, and it's fun, and, and I was with the Don't Die Wisconsin guys, and... Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about okay, that. You, so, you touched on that love thing, and I was just like, okay, so what did you say? Well, the interesting thing is I got to see them do a podcast live that doesn't involve us. And I, I'm going to say it now. I know Patrick and Kevin are listening to this. Ryan is the star of that podcast. Hmm. He really is the rock star of it. Really? Is, is he the yes. Mike Mart? No, he's the layman. Yeah, he's like the layman. <laughs> he's the non-clinical person. All right, I like and, him. <laughs> and the, you know, he just has a great way of explaining it. Whereas you and I, Chuck as cl- clinicians, and Patrick and Kevin as clinicians, we just have. I think we overthink it. <laughs> I, oh, and not only that, but but we've been given definitions of things. So instead of explaining it, we we've got a word that fits it. Yeah, we have we have and the newest word. Yes. Right. So it was really fascinating to watch them, and they were bombing because they were doing a live podcast in front of six hundred people. Like hmm. that's a really bad idea. Right. Right. But the, but but I was sitting up front and I could hear them. They weren't bombing in what's going to come out via the podcast. Sure. But in the room, you can't do a podcast in front of 600 people. That's crazy. No, it, it's hard enough. Like I've been to enough live radio broadcasts where it's just kind of it's 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 not the thing to go watch. <laughs> it's not a and it's not a I don't know. Like it, uh, it was just crazy. But then we were hanging out for two days and I realized our personalities are not like Mike is not the Ryan personality. Mike is the Patrick personality. Huh? I'm the Ryan personality and you're the Kevin personality. <laughs> really? Yeah. How it's does almost, that work? It's almost Me and like, Ryan have texted and talked a lot. I Well, it's not like I don't, I text with Patrick the most. We went to the basketball game together. I get along with him the closest. But the fact is that you're kind of the, the calm one. Kevin is the calm one. Oh, right? I see personally. Ah, I like him already. And I'm the crazy one. And yeah. Mike is the one that kind of stays the ship. Like, I would have talked for 15 really? more Yes, because I would have talked to that guy that was just here for 15 more minutes. He said, <laughs> okay, we got to go. No. We got to get enough. We got to uh, get, get going. You. Mike is good at wrangling. Well, I love those guys, man. Yeah, those they're guys, the greatest. You know. It was the greatest couple of days. And, and they are really changing that culture. And so it was just two days of of innovation destigmatization that's a word (laughs) well it is now destigmatization yes um and and it was amazing and when you think about these are the leaders of wisconsin this is not some niche thing in in the you know in milwaukee this is the leaders from all over all the tribal leaders the eap social workers mental health all the county program leaders and they were all talking so open-minded about addiction it was amazing so the tribal mean leaders what are you talking about are you talking about american indian yeah yeah really the tribes there's eight tribes in wisconsin oh there is yeah and only three of them are gaming 
So you understand there's mm. poverty. A lot of the, a lot, lot of the of tribes, like my tribe, the Chickasaw, don't they don't game. They actually opened their first casino, but for the years and years, they just didn't want that element in their tribe. They did chocolates, they did eyeglass companies, they did optical, they did all kinds of other business. And where is Chickasaw, Florida? No, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. But yeah, a lot of the tribes do not go for that gaming thing. Do you know that there is a fifty percent alcoholism rate in the in the Native Americans? Oh yeah, they love to drink, man. They love the huff too. Yeah, they yeah, no, huff, do whatever is, takes them out of their element, you know. Huffing is rad. You know, we were we were. I learned a lot about huffing <laughs> in Wisconsin. <laughs> like, wow, because that's, that's when you think about it, you can get wasted for like ten cents. Well, yeah. That's bang for your buck. That's even better than meth. Yeah, but it's headache. So back in the punk rock days, of course, there were a Did bunch. Did you huff? There, there was a, I huffed, but I didn't. I didn't <laughs> he huffed and I, he puffed. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't huff like on a regular basis. Like if some, you know, if we were in an alley with some punkers or whatever, <laughs> and they were huffing, I was huffing with Fuck them. Yeah. But what would you huff? Gasoline? There were some, there were you some gasoline? glue and paint, whatever. But, but, um. <laughs> But they were some experts and some guys that carried, the, you know, that knew how to do it. And <laughs> they were like, they were like huffing addicts, man. And well, that was I, way back in 80 something. Yeah, I, I never have huffed. Have you huffed, Chuck? <laughs> of course. You have? Of course. Who didn't? I'm surprised you didn't. And well, the gasoline we'd put in plastic bags and that was called doing issues. You put it in, you put it in like a Ziploc and you let it build up and then you'd hit the air from the. From the and what does it do? Just yeah, no, the dizzy? glue. The glue was the big one back before they yeah. made it. They made it not uh, toxic, right? Like but, in the eighties, you know. Then they figured out that oh, wait a minute, man, this is making kids high. This plastic glue, glue, right? But they had that. That stuff was flavored. I think we've talked about this. Flavor. I remember ha- no, it had smell like lemon scented or cherry oh, scented. I never test, got the, that, the, Chuck. the glue from Toy City, and I used I must to sit have got in my room and do that just for hours. The scented glue came out. <laughs> Jesus, you learn something new every day. Well, I, here's yeah. the thing. There are people whose primary drug of choice is huffing, and they are yes. getting treatment in Wisconsin. I've never had a huffer here. No. I, don't, I don't Maybe it's one. It's the lowest of the low, it, Bob. It's, really, it's, not, it's not a long enough high. It's a lot like doing Freon or... Um, I have had the, the walking on Sunshine girl. I know that girl. She's yeah. amazing. No, is, is the, the, the whatever it's called that they do now, that's huffing? With the, the, the cleaner, yeah, the spray yeah, cleaner, it's yeah. the same sort of thing. It's oxygen deprivation, you know. You've done Amol, you've done Poppers, yeah, you've done really. Russian well, Locker Room. So, the, you know, it's a it's a quick, it's not a long-lasting, and it's followed by a headache. Oh, at so least lock for me. Up, is lock-up huffing? Locker Room? Locker Room. Locker room. Remember well, Locker Room? Yeah, yeah oh, to, yeah. I well, it's to, kind of, you know, but I mean, oh, it was I Amol, that. that's Amol Nitrate. Yeah, I used to do that stuff. Oh, I'm a huffer. I qualify. Well, no, no, but, but you didn't do glue and paint out of a bag or off the sock. Glue? They put in a bag and then they carry it around. They do it all day long. It's not like a something they just they just you know they, they carry it around. They there do was it a, all day long. There was a disco club called the Odyssey on Beverly uh, and La Cienega, and they used to sell that stuff in the entryway of the of the disco. Wait, was that the roller rink? No, that's no. Uh, that's a Boogie Palace. Uh, that's Boogie on Palace. Santa Monica and La uh, Cienega. Yeah, by the Troubadour. Yeah, yeah, Roller Boogie Palace. Oh, yeah, whatever that place. I saw. The Simple Tones there. Yeah, they played. The Simple Tones played there. Mm, I nice. saw Prince there. 
Prince, no. Prince played at the Roller Boogie Palace. Really? Yes. The, the real Prince? The real Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson. Prince when he um, had the album Dirty Mind. You mean before? Hmm. Okay, so it was after he played with the Stones at, in Anaheim Stadium? No, it was before. And he, and, he, uh, and he came out in women's lingerie and everybody no, threw shit yeah, at him? Yeah, he had, he had leggings on a trench coat. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I was that, there. That, yeah. He played the roller yep. But the Odyssey sold lock-up or locker room or whatever it's called. Yeah, just thing. over the counter. And I would just, yeah, and I would just buy it and I would disco dance. And, and Chuck, <laughs> Chuck, there's never been a musical movement that I did not embrace I, at one I time or another. Da- I would disco dance. I would and, disco uh, dance. No, I had my about. whole thing. This is probably seventy. Because I first got my driver's license. So that picture that yes, the that picture the, of, that picture of me at the, at the blue spandex. Yeah. No, so Bob I had doing the disco duck. I had I <laughs> had John some Holmes of the tightest polyester Farrah <laughs> pants, and high, I had heels, white heels, white Goodness heels gracious. shoes, a white button shirt. I had a scarf that I would wear around my neck, and then I'd put it around the neck behind of the lady I was dancing with. Uh, and my oh, favorite God. song was Love is in the Air. Smooth. It's in every thumb and everywhere. You know what? Love to love you the it, way Bob. that I do. <laughs> and that's when the scarf would come <laughs> and out. I would, and I every... would do the locker room and put the scarf around the girl and disco oh, dance. God, I've just got a picture in my I, mind. I know, and I wanted it to be like a New York Dolls <laughs> thing when I saw <laughs> no, that picture of him. I thought no, he was like no. some glam guy. But, no, it was but, no, not was, a cool uh, thing. It was a disco thing. I was into the Bee Gees. I was into... Well, there's good reason Peter for that. Fram- they made some Peter good music. Frampton, Peter Frampton, obviously. Peter Frampton. Oh, yeah. And but then there, believe it or not, there was a disco club in Huntington Harbor, right off of Warner towards Bolsa Chica. There was a discotheque in there, and I would go there too and do "Love Is in the Air." What? Where is that? Bolsa Chica and Warner. At Warner, just north of Warner, out towards PCH in Huntington Harbor, there was a disco in there. That was spats. Spats. Oh my god. Yes, I used to disco dance and do and do huffing in spats. Spats was uh spats. <laughs> See to me, all you have to say is disco music, Bob, you're disco. Era. See, you went on the wrong Yes, I was a huffer. You went during on the wrong my disco night. Yeah, because spats had punk rock and yeah, stuff. Yeah, we had too, no, it had disco. That's what all the girls were at no, the disco. TSOL played there, the Texan Horseheads played there. Man, there they had go. that's where I had my first uh, blue drink, those blue things are no, called but hurricanes. This is like like 78 like this is disco oh, time yeah. it might have been a little yeah they, they went they went rock yeah i was rock. i was 11 i wasn't dancing oh, okay well anyways i was just thinking so i was a disco chuck was on a, a big wheel i actually <laughs> one of those three buck naked on a big wheel that buck was a tra- 78 wheel. was a transitional era where i would if you remember whenever the who caught quadrophenia movie came out uh-huh. i became a mod so I was a mod on certain days. I was a mod at the mod <laughs> events with my friend Luis Garcia and um, I forget the other friend of ours, uh, Victor, I think. And Victor had a, a Vespa. I didn't. I would just drive to the place and then stand by the Vespas. But I had the parka. Nice. And Luis Garcia had a Luis Vespa? Garcia was, oh. was into the mod scene. That's awesome. So I'd do the mod scene with them on certain mod nights in uh, wherever it was. Then I would do the disco thing at Spats or the Odyssey in West L.A. And then I also was getting into punk rock in The Clash. I was, I was a multi... In one week, I would be three characters. 
Well, so were wow. the Clash. They were all three of those characters. And too. there was three drugs of choice for those characters. Obviously, the locker room for disco. The mods were very into black beauties and alcohol. Oh, I remember yeah. black I beauties and alcohol. Keep it sharp. And then for some reason, the the punk rock, the Clash type thing was a cocaine alcohol. It was very sophisticated, the Clash. They were very sophisticated. It wasn't TSOL. I wasn't going to TSOL shows. I was going to the Clash at the Hollywood Palladium and to Spats to Disco Dance and to Mod Night. (laughs) See, what a magic time. Think about what's happening in those three areas tonight. Oh, my God. Mediocrity in every way. Right. Right? On the best nights. Well, yeah. being a heroinologist that I am now. <laughs> oh, uh, no. I knew you'd find a label for he's it. He's a heroinologist. <laughs> I'm a heroinologist. I've decided that there can be addictionologists, and uh, I am just an expert in heroin. So you're, you're I would a heroinaholic. So I would say, Bob, that you that heroin actually brought you together. It right. brought it, you it, all together. It discarded it all the phoniness. all the phoniness. This and then just brought you focused and, and to your base clean animal and pure. Instincts. Actually, I was just I, I consciously know that I was just trying to copy Lou Reed. Because Lou Reed's songs just were about his everyday life. I get a lot of credit for that, especially in the Bob and the Monster movie mm-hmm. that I wrote songs about everyday things. I was just I I I was I I was copying exactly Lou Reed's songwriting. If you look at Lou Reed, he just he can talk for eight lines of verse about getting up in the morning and <laughs> walking down the yeah, street. But, but it's interesting somehow because just, of the way he sings right. it. Well, just like you, yeah, you're John Fogerty hanging out at Cantor's. There it is. Yeah, there it? it is. And so there's this one song by Lou Reed where it was the day John Kennedy died. You ever heard that song? It's basically from the moment on campus that he hears John Kennedy has been murdered and him walking to his dorm. The whole 12, all three verses are just about. What is that on? It's on Blue Mask. Oh, wow. Okay, don't, I'm not, yeah, that's, I'm not, I don't know that record well. So I get credit for introducing this, talking about everyday life to New Wave or punk rock or whatever. I was just copying somebody everybody knew about. How come nobody copied him? Because it was, he was hard to. He, I think he'd be hard to emulate. You obviously thought you were good enough to do it. I mean, <laughs> and there's there's a thing. Good there's one, like, Chuck. There, there's like people that go. I mean, I listen to Bowie, and then I'd write a song and go, "Oh God, that sounds too much like him." Well, of course it does, because that's what we call. You know, when we steal. Well, when I steal something, I say I'm heavily influenced by them. But you know, so but it's like to have the balls to present something that forward. You also were part of a a, a bigger music thing, man. I. I like yeah, it's more isolated. So everybody was getting their niche, right? A Mike Mart word from earlier today. So Anthony had this braggartry hip hop, rock and roll kind of territory that he had mapped out. Nobody did it better than him, right? Right. And then Angelo Norwood and Chris Dowd of Fishbone had this like crazy funkadelic kind of and party stuff captain Beefheart kind of weird words that don't go together crazy thing mapped out and then of course your buddies social distortion had the (laughs) my buddies well you you guys are they're from orange county i forgot well you you got to admit that 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 social distortion because of mike of course has remained rock solid that's what i respect about him but in his style never wavered from his style 
except to do a little bit of country and western stuff which is kind of his style you know no, but, but i'm talking world. about that era the era i'm talking about social mm-hmm. distortion was mommy's little monster sure. it was 81, amazing yeah. i loved it but yep. i had nothing in common with it yeah, it was like right. a it was like a suburban kids it, it kind was. of rebellion it, it whereas we were living in hollywood there's a big difference between living in anaheim and living in hollywood right yes and so so I looked around, and the other person who was writing great songs that I felt like I could kind of be like was Steve Wynn in the Dream Syndicate, right? Hmm. And he was using literature and music reference. Like, he had this great song called John Coltrane on the Stereo, baby, make you feel all right, right? And I just thought, God, that's cool to introduce like things that you're interested in into songs and i started doing that so you're influenced by the things around you but there's no way i could ever write a song like mommy's little monsters i could never do it that's like a thing that comes from another world well, but that's that's because what you're doing was genuine it wasn't wasn't put it wasn't a put on either that's what i think is missing except for in little pockets and i think that guy little peep was describing what millennials feel like i think he was a he was the next Kurt Cobain, and he died before. Before his never mind. It could could, yeah. could could come to fruition. That just the way he talks about sexuality and the way he talks about life. I mean, you're talking about a kid who only made like two EPs. You no, know what I, I mean, I think you you tapped that so well. People weren't here, but when you were talking in the earlier group, the the whole idea that we were we were pleasure seekers and we were looking for you know comfort and the idea of escape was really secondary for us where it was like we escape, wanted to escape the escape horrible was lives eventual yeah right? because we wanted to get out of the shit we'd caused by seeking the pleasure and seeking the comfort whereas their immediate escape hence the you know heroin at, at 15 and 16 and being their first drug well let's go into it because i think there's three major buckets of why people take drugs one is you know pleasure seeking one is comfort seeking and one is escape, right? And I was always a pleasure seeker. Drugs feel good. That's why you take them. I didn't have any pain. You know, I think we invent pain in the rehabs, right? <laughs> You've got to have some trauma. Let's find it. <laughs> <laughs> what about the fact that everybody does it and some people don't do it very well and it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin their lives? But, but you can't tell me. I mean, I use drugs with everyone, half the half the people I knew in high school and in my college years, not hardly any of them ended up like a fucking drug addict. Well, as a heroinologist, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I would say that, and I'm not going to lie, it can focus you to be a better artist and it can work in the beginning, although it ends up usually ruining your life. Right. In the end. But well, people it, sometimes use it their entire lives. And I think every heroin addict strives to be that William Burroughs who uses it and is successful their entire lives. Or that Keith Richards that uses it their entire They're so rare. Life. Okay, Basquiat's the greatest example. So is Basquiat's art because of his drugs or in spite of his drugs? I think it was somehow, somehow, it was made possible by his drug use, right? When you just, I just watched a documentary about him. Hmm. It's crazy how he painted. 
I mean, I don't know if you know much about Jean-Michel Basquiat. Just seen some works right, and so seen books. You're talking about over an eight-year period of time, he amassed more paintings than somebody who painted for 50 years right and here they show him in his studio painting he's got like eight canvases all over some on the floor some get leaning against the walls he's got a television on with the sound on and he's got music playing and he's walking from painting to painting just adding to different things in this hypomanic state and they're all masterpieces and his girlfriend at the time, his muse, this woman who's now a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, she says, you know, sometimes he would hear something on the television, not be watching it, but he would hear somebody describe something on the television, either in a documentary or on a talk show, and he would go right over to a painting and write it. Ah. That he was just, he was able to take in all this fucking magic. Focus. And then focus it, right? <laughs> and put it into something that the whole world goes, <laughs> got it. oh my God, yeah. right? But in the end, it killed him. And in That's the right. end, here's another thing about him. In the end, it didn't work anymore. And it, do, it doesn't work. It doesn't work forever. But it does for not that work pocket, that two or three years or four years that it works, when the artist is in that place, I don't think the artist could be in that place without drugs, and I don't think drugs make the artist in that place. Do you understand what I'm mm -hmm. saying? No, yeah. Right? Take pot away from Bob Dylan. Does he, does he write like a Rolling Stone? I don't think so. Or methamphetamine. Does he write all those lyrics back in the day? Oh, so many he, lyrics. So many lyrics. <laughs> no, he was on, he had to be Mike on Mike has a whole theory about Dylan. That you can he tell, had to be on methamphetamine. Abuse, and but tell, I don't think Chuck's really versed into Bob Dylan. There's Bob <laughs> Dylan songs. Are you? Yeah. Pretty, okay. Pretty good. There's Bob Dylan songs that have 12 verses. Okay. They don't repeat. Right. It's crazy no, to yeah. write. Th and all of them were great. I mean, think about how hard that is. If you break that no, down, have, yeah. that's four good songs in one song. It's more, it's more, more than four. I mean, yeah, when you, if you go from like it's a Tangled Up in Blue, but to Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35 or whatever, you know, it gets a lot more simple as the oh, drug yeah. use gets more, you know. I'll, as the drugs um, stop working, his songwriting gets more simple. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he changed, you know, maybe he went from... <laughs> He went from like, you know, one drug yeah. to another because talking World War II blues is just yeah. stream of consciousness. Well, Kerouac wrote on wine and, and methamphetamine. But you know? th there's definitely a change somewhere along the way where he went from writing. Uh, all those guys used meth. Right. Well, here's the one that has the most verses. It's all over now, baby blue. Does that, that no. era. It's a, every oh, line never. is a new line and it's amazing where most people would go, okay, those four lines, I'm just going to repeat them after the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> Second verse, same as the first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm Henry the Eighth. I, I am. am Henry the Eighth. I am. I am. Yeah. They just... actually put that in the song. Second <laughs> verse, same as the first. <laughs> I think so did uh, Ramones and Violent Femmes. I mean, a lot of great bands did that. But you're right. I mean, because it was more about the feeling than it was the words. And that's why listening to Dylan is great. Except for uh, I, I, he lost me when it was like. Knocking on Heaven's Door and Lay Lady Lay and like that era, I was just like, "What? Oh, How did he lose you on that?" He's not only a heroinologist; he's a Dylanologist. <laughs> well, not Fantastic. really. There are such Dylanologists, but I just sort of rank as a huge fan. So, separating the artist from the drugs, I don't think you can. I think the drugs help the artist, and I think the artist is able to 
do things that without drugs, I don't think they would be able to do, but they will be destroyed by it. The drugs. Well, yeah, it wasn't a Steven Tyler where he was talking about, he goes, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we've done a lot of great work sober, but sweet emotion would have never happened. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, the other thing, it's his birthday today, by the way. Happy birthday oh, happy to Steven birthday. Tyler. Um, uh, so th- did I tell you the story about Rocks? I think Rocks is one of the 10 greatest rock records ever made. Errol Smith Rocks. Okay. Right? Yeah, it's great. He doesn't even remember making oh, that's <laughs> <true>. <laughs> See? There's that. <laughs> He goes, I go, where did you write it? And he goes, I don't know. We always used to get together, just me and Joe. And I don't know, in Massachusetts somewhere. We had this old kind of fun. He has no idea. He <laughs> what has a no shame. Idea what I, a shame. Because I was like, where, how did you, because there's songs there that to me represent L.A., right? And how's this on the stilts, the last child song? Okay. He, he's like, just looks at me all confused, like, I don't know that it was that thought out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Maybe man. it was That's Bora Bora. living in the drug bubble. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think that anything's better well, than no. rock. And, and most people don't come up with great stuff when they are that fucked up. I mean, I, there's a lot of people that did as many drugs as them, but they didn't write an album like that. I mean, when you talk about, like, Get Your Wings is their second album. That has Seasons of Wither on it, one of my favorite songs. And then there's a little, Dream On is on the first album, which is crazy. One of the first songs they ever wrote was Dream On. Think about that. Think about that. Then they make Toys in the Attic, right, with Sweet Emotion and and Walk This Way. Now this this is a different category of human. Like they're in a bubble that, no, like, and then they make rocks. Like, there's no bands that do that anymore. That's four. That just ones, get better and better. You start on your first album is "Dream On," a song still playing probably a hundred times across America right now on the radio, right? Mm-hmm. To rocks, which I think every song on rocks is great combination i found the secret the key to it all we walked in darkness kept hitting the wall people worked harder on their music <laughs> they, they i swear to god i'm not kidding they worked harder on their music maybe they the worked day. harder on the know, songwriting we were, we were talking about uh credence clearwater guy john fogarty credence clearwater would put out two albums a in year. one year i know they just toured constantly they put out an album they came home they recorded it in a couple of days it was out the next day and they went back out on tour on their new record they did it in a shorter period of time. You're yeah. talking about Aerosmith makes Dream On in 72. Well, same thing. To, they worked To hard. Rocks in 76. In four years, they made four albums. Yeah, Aerosmith, no. Get Your Wings, Toys in the Attic, and Rocks. Yeah, one a year. That's perfect. Yeah, see, That's yeah. crazy. Bands yeah. take four years to make a shitty album now. Exactly. To make a, a, a shitty second <laughs> they album. They don't work as well. <laughs> Spare us the interesting second album. That's my favorite Bono quote. Spare so, us the interesting second album. Just so, do a good one. So we've established that art and drugs... It's the fucking drugs, bureaucracy. Though. Art and drugs are interrelated. I don't think you have to remove it. And this... this I'll give you a couple examples. So I worked with a lot of musicians, as everybody knows. So one day... 
I'm working with this band that's pretty popular in the indie rock world, right? And the guy gets sober. He stayed in treatment for 90 days. He, he's really connected. I just spoke to him day before yesterday. Still, 20 years later, he's still sober. He's on the tour bus. We had talked about him going on tour, and those guys are going to drink, and they're going to do whatever they're going to do, and it's none of your business to stay in your bunk and whatever and call me and, it'll, you know, stay, stay focused and whatever. We had a game plan. He... He's driving on the bus. He calls me. I just pick up the phone like at 2 o'clock in the morning. He goes, name me one artist that became a better songwriter and made better records after they got sober. And I said, none. You'll be the first. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> because, because this is a guy who does not like Aerosmith, does not like Eric Clapton. Those were the go-to. The go-to, well, Eric Clapton and Aerosmith. Right. And I just knew the right thing to say was none. You'll be the first because <laughs> he was having that mind fuck. Everybody's mm -hmm. drinking and smoking weed on the bus. He's being he's feeling alone. And now his brain has got you're never going to make a good record. Yeah. But what right? about bands that have are, that never really had drug problems and make great records like Cheap Trick or something like that? Cheap Trick's not in the Aerosmith category, are they? Yeah, but they had some great records. Dude, if, yeah. I, I, in the day, I man, they had a lot of, they they a lot of yeah. great stuff. They're Way more pop. They're and way then, more like. And then pop you're talking drunk, about Lou Reed. Lou Reed wrote Boo Mask sober. I know. New Sensations is about Fucking being great sober. record. Right. But it ain't. But it ain't. Velvet Underground album. Iggy Pop. <laughs> Iggy it's pop. not rock and roll. It's not. <laughs> Iggy Pop was not sober when he made The Idiot. He was not doing heroin. There's a big difference. Well, what about David Bowie's, <laughs> like all of David Bowie's work? You know, when he, David after Bowie's he got sober. out of his mind. After he got sober, he, Black Star wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't high. He was right. sober at the end of his life. I know, but that if you take away the fact that he's dying as Black I mean, Star, that great of a record. What I'm saying. No, wait a minute. But Nate the Man is big on the Black Star. And I liked Black Star. I loved the video. But. I've been wanting to have this conversation. I think he's been dead enough, long enough now. He is like a god to me. There, he's above Jesus to me. And we all know that. So, so if he wasn't dying and it wasn't released the way that it was, wouldn't it have just been another of the many David Bowie records that aren't as good as Station to Station, uh, uh, Ziggy uh, Stardust, Honky Dory. Wouldn't it just been another like Heathen or Earthling or you know, whatever? It's, it's sad. It's sad because he did so much good stuff. Like when the day after next came out, uh, it was the one before Black Star. I was like, I was just so glad that it wasn't embarrassing that it would, that it could actually right. stand on I its mean, own. He, he and never then, became lame. One thing you say about David Bowie. Let's do it this way. Nobody was ever better for longer. You're talking about great from 1967 to 1985. There's no one that was that good for that long. Not the Beatles, not the Rolling Stones, not Neil Young, not Bob Dylan. That consistently 10-star yeah. album after 10-star album for that long a period of time. You're talking about from Space Odyssey, Oddity to Modern Love. I mean, no, but every album is a masterpiece. And then he goes into a period where he makes good albums. They're not bad albums like Neil Young has made, like Bob Dylan has made, like the Rolling Stones have made. They're just not those albums. Right. <coughs> well, I think I, I believed it too that Black Star was 
like as good as those other albums, but it's not. I, I, I think I wanted it to be, and I think you're right. When I saw the Lazarus video, the fact that he put on that he put on how art he planned it to be released the day he died. It's and just what crazy. It, it's just such a perfect artist's life when you look right. at it, and the way he planned it and everything. It's just like if anybody got it right, it was David Bowie. You know, so, so let's let's do the top if ten. Anybody, you're saying if anybody got dying right, it was Bowie. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think he beat that anybody at that game. I think he Bowie was Bowie and Walt at, Disney. He was at Bo- the top. Bowie of, and Walt Disney. Well, Walt Disney is frozen. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah. Walt Disney is chirogenic, cryogenically yeah. frozen. I thought it was just his head. They do, they do like Simpsons episodes about it. Yeah, are you sure that's not <laughs> just a myth? No, it's real. I don't know that it is. Ted real. Williams has done that. I Lots don't know of, that it's real. I think it's. I, I hope it's true because it's ridiculous. <laughs> I hope somebody's making a lot of money on that because that's, that's one of the funniest okay, things I've ever so heard. So we don't talk about music enough. I think top ten albums of all time or greatest artists of all time. By far, David Bowie is the greatest pop, greatest rock artist, whatever category you want to call of all time. Above John Lennon, above Bob Dylan. I, no I agree one with, is agree that great that. for that long. In that many different incarnations. Yeah, nobody's above Bob Dylan. He is. Bowie's above, above Bob, Bob Dylan. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about personal taste. See, I have. So let's give our let's give our top. You want to give our top three? I would say Bowie, Dylan, John Lennon. Uh, Bowie. Uh, yeah, I would say I would say Dylan, Lennon, and Bowie. Okay, yours, Chuck. It's, so you got to go outside the box. You can't pick one of those three. No. Wow. <laughs> you, you guys just kind of doubled up. You just switched the order. Can I, I just do a different order? Yeah. No, no, no. See, I think I think Bob Dylan's great. I think because of my time and when I came up and when it when I had the musical impression, I think nobody made a stronger, longer lasting impression on me than David Bowie. Uh, it, you know, but what you don't need to talk about that. This guy walks in, and I've got Ziggy Stardust on my wall at work, and he goes, "Hey, Bowie," and I go, "Didn't he do a lot right?" I mean, it's just so much. So, right. so few people you can say that about that easily. Um, How about it, that? Is both his kids are amazing. And, right? Yeah. How about the fact that he's married to the same woman for thirty five? That they're years? not in the news. How about the for fact all the wrong that he reasons? was married to the same woman for thirty five years? I mean, so he did excellent in every way. And I heard he was gracious and, and humble in working with people on the Black Star. They talked about that the most, how he saw a band and he said, hey, come to the studio, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. These kids that were just playing in New York City, this jazz band, right? And, and he was just humble and great and easygoing and self-effacing. I mean, nobody did it better than David Bowie. But... So when you go into albums, I, what's the top of the food chain of albums? See, to me, it's always Exile on Main Street. There's nothing like it. It would be the Rolling Stones, it's the Exile Beatles, and, and Dylan, yeah. But it, is it, is it <laughs> Exile on Main Street? Because uh, I've introduced people to that album, and they say they don't get it. And right away, I don't want to be friends with them anymore. Well, that's the people that pick Hotel California over, <laughs> over any Pink Floyd. If you go, wish you were here, comfortably numb, or Hotel California, you say Hotel California, oh, and we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> oh, and there's some people that would pick Pink Floyd over everything. Right. Well, yeah. you know, and see, there were so, another I mean, one of those. It a, it's a see, matter of But it's easy. For me, it kind of goes like God and the gods, and then there's Bowie, and then there's a lot of other but bands see, that kind of sprout underneath I it. Like, I love XTC. I think but they're, I they're a lot of you're holding your hand way up here going, the gods. God and, and the, the gods, and, God, and then Bowie. And then, and then, Bowie, then, so. then there's like... The, 
the he's church, about there's Achilles. the Clash, there's he's XTC, talking, yeah. there's uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch of bands that are under there, but they didn't quite raise up. They were all influenced by David Bowie. You know, Mark Bowen was great. He wasn't around long enough to give us a catalog. But who did the gods influence? Is what I want to show. Yeah. It's a gift from the gods. Let's put it that way. From the but, universe. But so what's interesting is the the greatest album of all time in my mind is not made by one of the three greatest artists of all time. That's interesting. Is because it, is it my because record? music it because music is so I'll give you an example. Elvis Costello clicks with me. Oh, I named my yeah, son see? after Elvis Costello. I love probably six of Elvis Costello's records. I still listen to them on a weekly basis, but I know he's not David Bowie. It's just because I like he his lyrics and his way of doing things connect with me. His anger and see, I, even, I even like Spike all the way up to Spike, but even that just starts getting weird. The the Juliet letters got weird, but I love like Armed Forces is unfuckwithable. Armed Forces, um, you know this year's you model, unfuckwithable. Um, look, look, best song on that album is a cover song, Nick Lowe. No chemistry class. How <laughs> Nick about- Lowe was great. I mean, see, once we start delving into greats, there's <laughs> so many greats. Joe Jackson, Joe Jackson put out ba, 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 bump. great album. I'm a man. The Look Sharp and the I'm the Man records were great. Yeah, but that that's a one-hit wonder. That's like two albums. You're talking about other people that have done great things. And why it's so important is because I know in each one of us, the passion for music is palpable it's 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 you can feel it when i talk about music there is nothing else that's important but music and what i fear nowadays is music is just another commodity of many of the media sources background background music and i fall into the trap of listening to music on my phone like that's not cool you need to fucking have doesn't a stereo. doesn't even sound good, yeah. Like, Welcome to the Working Week, Elvis Costello. So, so much urgency in all his songs. It seemed like, man, I got to tell you this fucking thing. It's yeah, just it's Everything is fuck. like that. He's like, he's happy to see you as a dog when you get home after being gone. Right. And you so know, and, there's all these great artists. And why not, if music is in a sad state right now, why don't young people go listen to that great music? And who are guiding them to it, right? How come... How come we're not doing more to to encourage 20 and 22 year old people to listen to armed forces? Because when I was a kid, when I would go to the record store and buy Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, hard promises, the record store guys would say, you know what, you ought to check this out and introduce me to Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's how I that's how I learned about Creedence. I mean, I heard it as a kid on the radio, mm-hmm. but I hadn't listened to the albums. I never bought a Creedence album until a guy at a record store said, if you like Tom Petty, you should fucking listen to this. There's it's still Creedence. some record stores, but you know, that's like video stores. You used to no, go but in and they tastemakers go- can do it. People that have podcasts can say, you know what, kids, why don't you instead of listening to any Andrea, Bor- whatever her name is, Andrea Ariana Grande, or all this <laughs> stuff, go go to your parents' records, pull them out of the garage, and look for Elvis Costello and Pink Floyd and XTC and S- S- Social Distortion and listen to those records. It'll change your life. It'll change your perspective on things. It'll inspire you. Do you know how far ahead of the game Kraftwerk was? 
Are you hip to that at all? Yeah. Right. I'm the operator the with tour the de bucket calculator. <laughs> well, <laughs> God. Here's the other thing about people. Everything followed. No, but how music. it happens. How electronic. Listen, nobody heard of Kraftwerk. It was a small niche thing. The, the Hanson Brothers and a couple of hand. They sold 100,000 records. A DJ kid in New York City at the beginnings of hip hop heard Trans Europe express his name is africa bombada yes and he took that and made it into hip-hop music now i don't think there's a lot of hip-hop people listening to other genres of music anymore they just listen to their genre of music there's not audiophiles the way that i was as a kid the way that other people were as a kid the way that the people i know that made hip-hop were right matt dyke one of the founders of hip-hop knew everything about every category of music everything craft work stooges aerosmith um uh, crazy r&b ltd crazy r&b records there was people who were just had an unquestionable search and thirst for music Instead of just listening to the music that you like, that's recommended to you by your Amazon music Yeah, profile. because you like, because you bought this, you might like <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. Oh, thanks for keeping it right in my little zone. I right. think we need your, a your, revolution. Your, your a, recommended a, playlist. A generational revolution of music, right? I'm embracing Sydney is now obsessed. My little one is obsessed with Michael Jackson. Not at the most ideal time, Chuck. <laughs> no. no. It's really Especially not when a Michael Jackson podcast. Popular week, <laughs> yeah, right? He's, he's and she's rough. dancing, shaking her booty to Michael Jackson. I posted on on uh, Instagram, and you should see. Like, are you sure? Right, come on, Bob. <laughs> and they think I'm being ironic, like I'm making her like Michael Jackson. Well, just to be a dick, huh? Are you? Hey, listen, yeah. uh, all of his family says he's intro- He's uh, he's innocent, though. Oh, I mean, wouldn't they? They're making all the dough. <laughs> well, <dumb>. you know. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't. That you know, that point. doesn't change the song. The fact that the songs were good. Well, let's talk about that. Does does? <laughs> I think we. Yeah, we don't we want to talk about this that. One. But those songs, we all kind of. Avoided if the that. song was good, uh, the week before I saw Never Leaving Neverland. Why did you this, watch it? Why, of did course. you watch it? Yeah, I did. Do you believe it? They they seem to be believable. It doesn't seem like people making stuff up. The stories are are the stories that they tell are are in depth enough but i mean is that enough to accuse somebody or to hold somebody accountable based on i don't know anymore i mean i saw today that jesse smollett was been vindicated yeah well that doesn't mean that doesn't mean he's not guilty they said he's been he's been cleared of charges and that he would he he left his bond there i don't know it's the third time it's getting he's getting tried in the in the media Without us here, without us ever hearing the other side, you have to have an ability to oppose. You have to be able to, uh, you know, confront your accusers. That's the way it's supposed to be. Just because someone says Bob's a dick, I'm not going to go. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure uh, Mike said Bob's a dick, so Bob is. Right. I can't. That, I can't do that. But what about there's? Okay, it's come out that the guy who bought a friend of mine's company is a Nazi, right? Huh. And so Are now they? my friend is getting crucified, right? What do you mean it came out? He uh, it just came out to media that this company that owns Einstein Bagels, the my friend's coffee company, is a Nazi sympathizer, right? Hmm. And now my friend who doesn't know this has nothing to do with it. Now he's getting crucified. He took Nazi money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, so, so it must oh, have been, no, it, was, it was Swiss or French money it's that he a, took then. It's always trying to get somebody. Yeah. Get them, get them, That's get what you're them. talking about. Is this, and it's just ridiculous. Society like, where it's, well, it's a business. So the, the question is, HBO decided to go forward with this documentary from what I understand, I won't watch it. But from I what either. I understand, I'm not it's watching. a lot of stuff everybody already has heard or know about, right? That they're just drudging up old things about a dead guy. When is enough enough? Did HBO really serve a public good with this? You had said you thought they did because it was a lot about child sexual abuse and how to protect kids or whatever, right? Well, it made you. Th- well, it caused me to think, but I also okay, I also know minute, that now, now, I got a fucking question here, Chuck. You watched it. I'm not going to watch it. Okay, what kind of a parent leaves their kid alone with Michael Jackson for the weekend? Poor, poor people that are groomed to do that. And they, I don't. It, it. It's not. It, I don't it, fucking it, get it, it. I know, but that's, who does that? That well, that's why it's really easy to do the. I'm assuming. It's, it's really I, I don't know anything about without it. seeing that the, there is a lot of grooming that goes. There's on. There's grooming and there's poverty. And where there's grooming and there's poverty, there will be exploitation. And, and where it doesn't appear when you have, like, the young man with his sister with him for the first night or two, and they're hanging out, and everything is like, so it's like, it's like hanging out. It's like saying, it's really easy. I understand the snap judgment. I, I get it. I, it sounds, it sounds uh, crazy, but the way it was done, if it was done the way they say it was, which I just, man, it just seems like people's words just aren't worth shit which is sad because people say things all the time and then if if it turns out that what they said isn't true there's no repercussions but we've done a ton of damage it didn't seem like the the men that they interviewed were lying yeah so they're and the parents the truth, felt duped but the were parents they stupid? are responsible Probably, the parents know. are the guardians of the children you right. don't leave your children with a weirdo who thinks he's fucking peter pan i mean mm-hmm. i don't care what those parents agree, are Bob. the ones that are responsible for what happened he he as as complicit as perverted as as traumatized and as hideous as his behavior seems to have been may have allegedly been. may have okay. been those parents allowing their children to sleep in a bed with him is disgusting and she, and in our politically correct society you never criticize them why not it's just it's a stupid why? Be, because everybody's a victim the parents are a victim it, i think they were made listen, they were I, made to look like uh made to look like victims too listen um, my i don't care if it's michael jackson or or my best friend my kids don't need to sleep in a bed with any adults how about that just as a parent rule <laughs> exactly well, you know yeah. and, and you that, think that exactly well Bob. you know that's <laughs> fucking exact i don't i don't even like I don't even like bug in our bed. If he comes into our room, he can sleep on the floor with a blanket next to the bed. Now wait it's a just, minute. Oh, uh, now my your son own son? Absolutely. <laughs> really? Sometimes sometimes I'll you fall throw asleep him on with the him. Floor? Sometimes I'll will fall asleep with him in the bed, but I put him in his because that's where he belongs. It's just a weird thing. It's never sharing your bed is I know some people do it as a loving thing, <laughs> yes. but never sharing your bed with your can, kids. Can I just is share vital. something that Chrissy really? will hate? I'm going to share something, Chrissy. Chrissy never listens to the podcast, so nobody <laughs> tell her. Kids always nobody tell her. Bed. Listen, so last night, literally, we were having intimacy in the living room, right on the couch, 
And she said the funniest thing, she said, why do we have a king-size bed and we are out here, two grown adults, <laughs> doing this? And I said, because Sydney's asleep in the bed. Right. <laughs> I got, my kids rule the bed. I have to go elsewhere if I want intimacy. Yeah, your kids can sleep in your bed. I but, don't understand that. But stuff. how do you but be a married that, couple when your children sleep in the bed? You, with you go can't in the be. living room just like you did. You have sex out in the living room. Man. You can't be. Then, then Elvis walks the, out and goes, hey, what you know, the what frick? The hell that's no, not even his mom. So yeah, you know, then you got a whole world of explaining to you. You have stand-up sex in the kitchen or something. You no, know, it's something weird. You know, that makes but it exciting. Really, it's, I like your idea. I'm going to use this idea. Maybe she can sleep on the floor. It, it's you know, but in, you on know, the some, floor. I don't get that. Chuck. You know, sometimes, some you know, in in the early, earlier towards the morning, if it's like five o'clock or something, five thirty, because we're up at six. Bed. Yeah, you yeah, can get yeah. into the last. But this is not your bed. This is mommy and daddy's bed. That's when did your you bed. Start That's that, where you though? sleep. When did you start with that? him from from birth? No, really? yeah, same thing with my other two. They didn't sleep in the bed till they were like two. It's coming to a close with Sydney. No, because it, it's one of those things. That's so, I think with Tristan, he with my oldest, he he slept in the. You know in the, what it's called? Let's bed. call it what clinically what it is. It's called co-sleeping. Co-sleeping. Really? Yeah, we're when, co-sleeping. When when we went to finally go, <laughs> when Tristan finally went to his own own room. You mean when so the co-sleeping obvious. when the co-sleeping ended? It was <laughs> it was freaking hellacious, and I said I'm never going to do this to a kid again because he's up crying and coming to our door and putting his little lips under the door and going I can't sleep. <laughs> oh, and it's just like and you know what you're going to have to learn to do it. Mike did it three times. All three kids sleep in the bed till yeah, how old? Of course, until till how wanna, old? Until they want to go and sleep in their own bed. How old? <laughs> And it was not a fucking But it was not a problem Yeah four four or five five. They're like hey I don't want to sleep With mom and dad anymore I want to go You know It wasn't a problem uh, Were they controlled sleepers Or were they crazy Uh you didn't no, notice because you sleep good, huh? They're just, you know, they thrash around a bit. You know, and you've been. And you, sometimes, even if, if one gets scared, if there's a storm or whatever, they come in the. They, they, they can come in the That's bed. different for a little while, and then you, you then they go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they we're all, their own all three fathers trying to figure out what the well, best way is. Different, I, different parenting styles. And that's cool because what you do works for you and it's well, comfortable you have for you. Boys, you know, I have girls, so I guess it's different. I get, you know what? It probably would be different. Just because it's just one of those things. I, I don't know. Maybe it yeah. is a locking horns thing where it's just like, this is my bed. You get your own. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because that's the way I was raised. My mom and dad's bedroom was Bob, their bedroom. Does Elvis sleep in the bed with you guys? No. Sometimes. He's, he's a big boy. Sometimes? No. He doesn't want to. He, he has his own way now at eight. At yeah. five, he See, still. At, at five, he still did. Yeah, about eight or so, they start. They start. I mean, just he going didn't sleep there all the time, but he would sleep in his bed, and then, like you say, in the morning, yeah. that's the nightmare of children. Whatever time Elvis gets up, that's when everybody <laughs> right. else is getting and up. That's, that's very true at our house. Well, at least for her, I can sleep through it. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. Yeah. See, I like the when I was a kid, you didn't want your parents to wake up because you had the whole house to yourself. Kids are the exact opposite now. I could make whatever cereal I wanted. I could eat it wherever I wanted in the house. You could watch TV. I could watch yep. TV that I wanted. So I was glad that my parents were still sleeping and I, I was rolling. Yeah, that's you know the problem I mean? with being with having a kid. That's like, hey, it's time to get up. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, what do you want me to do? Elvis said, come and watch me play video games the other day. And I was like, what? <laughs> What's wrong with you? I'm not gonna watch you play video games. 
Like what? what? He needs an audience now. But uh, but I do like that. That when we do when there is something on, like what is the movie? We've been doing all three of the Hotel Transylvanias lately, and yeah, Bug doesn't want me on my phone. He wants me to sit next to him. He wants me Watch to put it. my hand yeah. somewhere on him, on his back, or on something. We're 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 going to be physical. We're going to have we're going to have some physical contact, and we're going to watch it together, and we're going to laugh. And when he thinks something's funny, or when I laugh, he's going to look at me like, "Why is that funny?" Right. But it's it's got to be us together. Yeah, I like I like campfire yeah, I like TV. I that. much prefer that to then then here have an iPod and go play over there or whatever. So go back. An iPod. Go back like five an years. Go back five years. So Sydney comes into me and said, Michael Jackson time. And she starts pulling my hand and she hands me the TV remote. Like, get it on, bitch. Oh, we, man. And we put it on and she walks up to the screen and goes, no, not that. That, that, that. And she's pointing at the song she wants. Mm. And then she puts it on, and her favorite song is, You Were Not Alone, and I Am Here With You. And she ballet dances. Now, that's Hmm. not good enough. She doesn't want me to just watch her ballet dance. She wants me to ballet dance, too. So in the morning the other day, me and her in the living room dancing to Michael Jackson. To you are not alone. Well, it's hard for me to Instagram it. I want to. I want it filmed. Think. <laughs> and we do on our toes ballet on our toes and twirl. Right. You are not alone. So then, get this. Then it ends, and she goes again. Again, again, and I go, listen, little girl, we're not doing that again. That was a magic moment. You and I had it together. That was it. We're not doing it again. So that's the joy of parenting, the joy of music, the joy of not talking about addiction for a whole podcast. What are the odds? (laughs) The addiction podcast that did not mention. No, life is about more than just terminologies and diagnoses you know, well then l- l- let's let's get there for just a second because i just had that wait a conversation minute i'm just with, jo- i'm just joining the heroin i'm with the heroinologist yeah, no, but, i'm just joining the not in the, the dsm mike there there was a, a, a client today who who was going to do an acoustic gig at, at some little place in costa mesa tonight and he was all nervous and he wanted to wanted to talk about it. And not only that, but because of what he hears at meetings, you know, there's a little bit of fear that he's not going to a meeting tonight, but he's going to do that. And I said, that's exactly the answer is go do what you love. You can do what you love because you're not doing what was killing you. Right. This is what it's about. It's not always about call me, let's go to a meeting. It's call me and let's get coffee. Call me, let's go see a band down the street. Call me, let's go to the beach. Call me, let's go here. Let's go do something. Let's go do this life that we can do now because we get to. We're not dying on All right. a daily basis. I, I sign oh, up. Oh, let's. Qu- that's great. Chuck. I sign I up for. That. I've signed up for that. Like I, I did stick pretty dogmatically for a couple years that I can't go do frivolous things. I could play a concert. I could work. I could um, spend time with my kid, but I couldn't go to a basketball game or something frivolous or something selfish, right? Until I was like three years sober, and then I thought, no, this is why I got the same idea you got. Like, no, this is why I go to means. This is why I'm sober, so I can go do the things that I enjoy, right? But I had a different category of things that were permissible to miss one of my meetings for, and it wasn't selfish means. Right, I don't think playing music is selfish. I think it's selfless and facing your fear and doing a lot of good things. But you know, going to a movie, 
in the, or that, that yeah, was it, where it was weird to there's me. A, my favorite TV, TV shows on tonight. It was before TiVo and all that stuff. It was hard to record TV. You just <laughs> gave up TV and we did that. But the idea of, of just getting back into it is so cool. And, and to see that he, there was concern. And I said, man, you know. That's the whole trick there, of it. But there's that whole thing where it's like, man, if your sobriety is hinged on a single meeting, you're fucked anyhow. Right. Uh, how about Chuck coming up with some controversial wow, shit? You know, my sponsor said something to me in my early, You went to early, one meeting a week, Mike. Early, early <laughs> sobriety but, that, that stuck with me forever. And he says, if you can't take this and live with it out in the real world, it's worthless. There you go. Oh, I like you it. You know what I mean? So You know that Mike only went to one meeting a week his first That's five right. The Hollywood right. Strip Group. Saturday morning at nine, 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. Took a commitment, followed my sponsor's advice, and uh, only concentrated on that one meeting. And guess what? how magical that meeting was? Half of that meeting, I still see, and they're still sober. Yeah. Well, how I'm crazy saying is the that? proof's in the pudding. And there are people that would tell you, you can't do it like that. That's never going to work. That's 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 the, the beauty of this thing. Is that, it, is that it works from so many different angles. That's how it worked it, in 1955. It, it, what Bob does works great for Bob. And I'm sure there is someone that was sitting in this room earlier that that could possibly work for. But that's not for us to figure out. That's for them it's to figure out. It's for you out. to say what works for you and then if somebody wants to adopt it. But I used to use Mike all the time because I, I came up in 96, 95 is when I really started going every day and then I had a relapse and in 96 I get sober until 99 or 2000. People would say, you have to go to a meeting every day and I would always go along with it because you're, you know, it's an older, more sober person than you saying that. Mm -hmm. But I would always think about Mike. Mike's the first person I knew that got sober and he went to one meeting a week. And that's, how is that gel with what this motherfucker is telling this newcomer? And how many meetings were available when they wrote that book? Yeah, you don't even want to get into that. I know, no, but, no, but so this, a, well, this is that, what we know. What, that it's doing this. It's one alcoholic, one drug addict, one afflicted person talking to another. But why does one meeting become so inspiring that dozens of the original core group are still sober 30 years later? That's why a is question. a meeting so powerful? I don't. Uh, you still go there? I still go there. I want to go. Where is I it now? I went, I went two weeks ago. It's at Highland Mel and Melrose? Melrose and Mansfield. Yeah. It, it, it's been many places. I was going also and did not stay sober, if that helps. <laughs> so the magic was there so, for some. So here's my theory is like the reason why I was attracted to my sponsor at that time was because well, he made things very simple. He said, look, just stay sober, call me every day and go to your home group. So I called him every day. We talked for 30 minutes, sometimes wow. 90 minutes. You know, see, how could you do that if you were sponsoring 10 or 12 people? You, you couldn't could talk not, to 10 people for 90 no, minutes, not even 10 no, minutes. You could not. So that's what, so you, you found somebody and you took the time and you got honest and you got to know it. I mean, I thought you were going to say because he was attractive. He, so, he, no, no, he was a truck driver with a beard. He was, mm. a, he was a biker guy. Biker. So, so here's, here's the message. There's many ways for you to get and stay sober, but you know, the idea is you have to find your way. And so that is a trial and error of what you hear suggested to you. Um, I had done the other things people said, call me by 8 a.m. or don't call me. I had a sponsor mm -hmm. that did that. I remember <laughs> being so anxious and nervous and resentful towards him. It's like, fuck this guy. What does he think he is? <laughs> How does that help sobriety to get that well, because uptight he, about nothing? Because he would go into work and you wouldn't be yeah. able to get a hold of him. Right. I know where it came from. Nowadays, people that don't have jobs say that. Well, yeah, uh -huh. just because that's the way it was told to them by the guy that did have a job. 
you know? <laughs> Think about that. Can you follow that? The, the call me by 8 a.m. or don't call me really was started by the old brigade of 70s guys that got sober that had jobs and they had to leave their house at 8 a.m. and they didn't have time for AA until 6 or 7 or 8 o'clock at night and they were not the people that gave a fuck whether you needed them or not. It's a crazy modern world, everybody. Have a good day. Have a good night. Don't die. Go out and live life, like Chuck says. And Find what fun. works for you. I found it. Good it wasn't night, easy. fellas. All right, see you later.